Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and for all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Coming up next week, a full episode. We're anticipating the, the locust swarm from Rolf Jacobson. Yes. But this week we have one more of our little, just sort of uh, cr- crickets chirping of an episode, uh, a little mini episode. Uh, this week Rachel's up again to walk us through Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34, which is the lectionary text for October 20th. All right, Rachel, what you got? Yeah, if Rolf is the swarm of locusts, I'm just the one little locust that comes first to signal to the others that it's time. So, I'm the, I'm the front-runner locust. Small but dangerous. Small but dangerous, yeah. I, I recently heard a Shakespeare line, Though she be but little, she be fierce, which always makes me think of my daughter. <laughs> anyway, so, we are in Jeremiah 31. And we see right away in verse 27 that we are still firmly in the exile because it begins with the phrase, a time is coming. Um, God is going to give promises right now of a better future, but we know that that means the future is not yet. We are still in the midst of suffering and exile. But as we do that, we watch something interesting start to happen at this point in the book of Jeremiah. In verse 28, God uses a series of words that have been used before in the book of Jeremiah. God says that just as before I was watchful to uproot and to pull down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will be watchful now over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. These are the same words that we've talked about. They were used in Jeremiah's commissioning. These are the same words that are claimed by God as God's proper realm and function later on in the book. But here, those words' time is finished. The chance for repentance is over. And now that the disaster has come upon them, there is no more need to uproot, to pull down, or to overthrow. Instead, now is the time for a different divine office and divine function. Now is the time to build up and to plant, as we said earlier. God's not interested in dwelling on the past. God is always interested in what is happening right now. And right now, the people are suffering. And so God comes to offer a word of hope. Now, Verses 29 to 30 sound like a really bizarre entree into hope for our ears. <laughs> no uh, but, but I would say to preachers, try not to get too hung up on it. It sounds like wrath. It's actually grace. Think about the text from Deuteronomy where it says, God says, I will visit wrath upon the third to fourth generation of people who don't listen to me, but love to the thousandth generation of people who love me. This text is taking that third to fourth generations and shrinking it even further and saying, now there will be no familial casualties in a visitation of God's wrath. One's responsibility for one's sin is going to be limited only to yourself. So it's actually probably a text of grace. If I were you, preacher, I would just kind of move quickly right past that one. Because in verse 31, you have something really cool. You have new covenant language. And this is famous Jeremiah language, which is fascinating because it puts the context of what God is doing now 
back into the story of Exodus. God says, It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, though I espoused them, declares the Lord. And right now, we just got to get into a quick preaching preaching pitfall. It's going to be really easy for people to jump from that to Jesus and saying, See, it's not like the covenant God made with Moses. And then the implication goes with the Jews. But the new covenant is Jesus, and the implication goes with the Christians. And that's a really dangerous line to walk. And it's just kind of nonsensical to do right here because we're not in the New Testament right now. This is still pre-Jesus language. So any new covenant that God is talking about is still with the Jews. Okay, just so we're all clear about that. What God says in this new covenant in verse 33 is that I will put my teaching, my Torah, into their inmost being, their kerev, which is kind of like your torso, your middle part, and inscribe it upon their hearts. Now, what is a heart in Hebrew exactly? I'm so glad you asked because I have been (laughs) studying this very thing. The word heart in Hebrew, as we've talked about before, is lave. And in Jeremiah, it shows up about 60 times. So it's not an uncommon word. It shows up in almost every single chapter. In Jeremiah 3, it says Judah did not come to God with kol lave, or its whole heart, but only under pretense. Later on in chapter 3, it's used to talk about one's will. In Jeremiah 4, the people are told to circumcise the foreskins of their lave, of their heart. But then later on in verse in chapter 4, it says that their lave shall fail, which means something like courage. In chapter 5, it's a stubborn and rebellious lave. And in chapter 11, the lave is tested and tried by God. And then we get to chapter 17. And in Jeremiah 17, verse 1, we get a really interesting verse, at least in regards to our text for today. It reads, The sin of Judah is written with an iron pen, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. Now, a tablet is kind of like the ancient equivalent of a notebook for us. Uh, Sometimes in places like ancient Egypt, they would use papyrus or even early paper. Uh, Sometimes other places, and Judah as well, would make impressions into wet clay tablets and then bake them or dry them. And sometimes they would inscribe things into stone itself. So here the Israelites' hearts are imagined as writing surfaces. And there could be a range of things that it could be trying to communicate with this image. But my guess is there's something about the permanence of writing that's being lifted up here. We take for granted the fact that we can scribble something on a sticky note, erase our hasty misspelling of occurrence, because honestly, how many consonants does that word actually need? (laughs) Rewrite it and then toss it out once it's done. Oh, and if the lead in the pencil breaks when we're writing, we just tap the end and we get a new piece. Or to heighten the contrast even more, we now look at the idea of post-it notes and pencil and we scoff and cry, who needs silly things like pen and paper when you have the indomitable opposable thumb? And we use our bodies to tap out a quick text that we send off into the ether and then go back to checking social media. So as I said earlier, the ancient writing process is quite different. It took a lot more time than ours, ours does today. 
It was a lot more permanent than ours is today. But the text is not satisfied to stop there with that image. The Hebrew word used here for tablet in Jeremiah 17.1 is luach. And that word could mean wooden boards used for ships. It could mean metal plates that were in the temple. But mostly it means stone tablets. Stone tablets. Is that ringing any bells for you, Tim, of other stone tablets which have been written upon? There's a couple that come to mind. Yeah, two in particular, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this is the exact same word as Moses' stone tablets in Exodus 24, upon which were written the law of love, given out of love by a loving God to a people who, in the midst of being given this divine gift, were hastily stacking their gold into a pile so they could make themselves an idol. The sin of Judah... Jeremiah 17 says, is written with an iron pen. With a diamond point, it is engraved on the luach of their lave, the tablet of their hearts. This is no disposable sticky note that's being described here or hastily scrawled message. It's not even a soft clay tablet, supple and ready to be shaped. The Israelites' hearts are pictured as a stone surface, a rock upon which their skin has been scrawled, transcribed with a diamond pen, unbreakable, unshatterable. There's no technical error that's going to be made with a pen like that. And the text goes even further. Instead of the diamond pen just writing upon this stone tablet, which the Hebrew word would be the word katav, the word here used is harash which means cut in, inscribed. It's actually the word used to mean plow. Picture deep furrows carved into the dirt with jagged edges forming two sides of the cut. The message here is that Judah's sin goes so deep, it reaches all the way to the heart. It's baked into their heart. It's plowed into the core of their very being, which instead of being soft and supple flesh is hard as stone. That's the lave we hear of in Jeremiah 17, 1. Here in chapter 31, it takes that image and flips it. At a moment when God is saying, I'm going to do a new covenant that will shift the pattern even of our greatest covenant, and I'm not going to use stone tablets to do it. I'll take your hearts, which you have turned to stone, and I'll say, that's fine. If that's how you want it, watch me work. I'll take your stone hearts and I'll inscribe them myself with my gift of love, the Torah. Then I shall be yours and you shall be mine, irretrievably mine, to the deepest core of who you are, stone or flesh. This is a beautiful text about God taking ancient sin and flipping it on its head. And I hope, preachers, you take the opportunity to preach on this one. I'm excited, Rachel, to see more of your research on this. We can tell that you've already got a passion going for this body imagery. And uh, wow, what great insight into the meaning of the tablets of the heart. So thanks for that. Yeah, thanks. I love it. It's fun. Okay, dear listeners, we're expecting you next week for our full episode. It's going to be a good one. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to catch up on some of the other uh, Jeremiah-related episodes... Uh, which are sort of concluded this week with this passage, then head over to firstreadingpodcast.com where you'll see all of our back episodes. 
And please do go to iTunes or your podcast place and subscribe to our feed. That'll help us uh, get the word out about first reading. Until next week, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.